Sarah. Hi, Allison. So we've been talking strikes. Uh, kind of feels like a broken record here on Spotlight on France. Talk about it at the start of each show, but um, it's kind of dominating things these days here in France, especially in Paris. Yeah, you can't escape another big strike today as we're recording Thursday. Yeah, people out on the streets still protesting this big pension reform. And that's despite the fact that the government has given in over parts of it, at least. The Prime Minister said they would remove what has been called the pivot age of 64. Yeah, so the original plan was that the, the legal retirement age would stay at age 62, but you'd be penalized some percentage off your full pension unless you worked until the age of 64, this pivot age. Yeah, but the unions never accepted this pivot age, so the government has backed down, saying it will withdraw it providing the unions come up with another plan to make sure this pension system will not get critically into the red in the future as we all live longer. So the ball's in the union's court, but um, it hasn't completely comforted them. You have the hardliners who still insist that the reform needs to be withdrawn completely. Yeah, I mean, it would be surprising, let's be honest, if they headed back to work after being on strike for six weeks with all the money that they've lost, even though some of them mm. are getting funds from uh, union kitties. Uh, but if they only obtain a fraction of what they want, well, yeah, clearly they think they've got to get more. Yeah, there's this feeling of, of fight the fight, I guess. Um, we have seen the transport part of the strike easing up a bit here in Paris. Metros have been running over the last couple of days. They haven't been before, though other sectors are pitching in. They're striking more. We're looking at like oil refineries and ports. So we're certainly not out of the woods yet. Of course, in all of this, a lot of the talk has been on businesses that have been suffering. Yeah, the latest figures show that the French economy has lost some 15 billion euros since Do, December the 5th due yeah, to the strike. which is not nothing. Um, some, though, have benefited from this. And I think, for example, cyclists and cycling industry, um, we like to talk about biking yeah, a lot both here. big bikers. <laughs> there, there's been a focus in the media on, on the number of cyclists in Paris that have actually doubled since the strike started in December. Yeah, some people are using their own bikes like we do. Some are using the city's Vélib bike hire scheme. Others are investing in their very first bikes. Yeah, and the bike lanes really are crowded. You have bike shops and repair centers saying they can't satisfy demand. And I, I actually went to get my own bike fixed this week and had to wait like an hour and a half. There were half a dozen bikes in front of me. I'd really never seen anything like it before. It's worse than the tobacconist. <laughs> it could be good news, though, couldn't it, for developing a greener, maybe less polluted Paris? Because the city's been investing in a new network of cycle paths, trying to get inhabitants here away from some of those polluting, especially diesel vehicles. And this is, I guess, really putting these bike paths to the test. We'll have to see, though, if these habits stick after the strike ends. I suppose it depends on the person. Yeah, in the meantime, cycling can be a hairy experience. And lots of people who are walking around, they're exasperated by cyclists who are cutting through red lights and, and riding on pavements and stuff like that. And some people are becoming really aggressive. Yeah, the strike say. is not making people zen and chilled out, I guess, so much for French solidarity. This week in the news in France, we have an ex-Catholic priest who is in court. This is Bernard Prenat. He's accused of sexually abusing dozens of Boy Scouts in the 1970s and 80s, and the trial just started this week. It's part of the biggest crisis the French church has been facing for decades. Last year, Bishop Philippe Barbarin, that's Prenat's boss, he was convicted of covering up the alleged crimes. Yeah, and so in the past in France, there have been convictions of priests, even a bishop 
all this for sex abuse. But the church has tried to sort of smooth it over and show them all as lone actors. Um, the journalist and Catholic feminist activist Christine Pedotti told me, though, that this Prena Barbarin affair has really shifted things and, and maybe showed the French church that it does have a systemic problem. France, just like the rest of the Catholic world. La France est la France, donc euh, on a voulu croire qu'on était une exception. France is France, so we think we're exceptional. But this was happening everywhere, in Canada, in the US, in Australia, Germany, Austria, Ireland, Poland, in Chile. France thought the problem would stop at our borders. The French church had to realize it had a problem, and it wasn't an exception. That's a difficult realization. It's difficult to come to terms that this happened in France just like everywhere else, that four bishops of Lyon, one after the other, closed their eyes on this priest, who everyone knew was a criminal. Prena's been in court this week. He's admitted the abuse happened, that it happened actually every weekend, though he said that at the time he didn't think of it as assault. Um, he's quoted here, for me at the time I wasn't committing sexual assault, but I was giving caresses and hugs, and then he says, I was wrong. And interestingly, Sarah, on the second day of the trial, he admitted that he himself was a victim of sex abuse by other priests. That's what he claims. He said that he had never told anyone until the police began investigating into him in 2016. Now, he told the court that the church hierarchy should have helped him. They let me become a priest, he said. And he said he told his confessor about his paedophilia desires, but that the priest gave him absolution and encouragement to make sure that he didn't start again. So basically for Pedotti, this case really shows that there is a systemic problem of abuse in the French Catholic Church. Um, she was actually part of a group that called for a commission, and the church did set up an independent commission. Finally, it ended up collecting over 2,000 testimonies. Um, she said, she told me she got involved because she's a feminist, and for her, this is actually a feminist issue. Je me suis interrogée sur la façon qu'avait l'Église de réfléchir à la question des femmes. I have always questioned how the church approaches the issue of women, of sexuality, of homosexuality, of parity, of LGBT inclusion, all these complicated issues that put the church at odds with society. I see the issue of pedocriminality as a symptom of an inward-focused masculine clerical culture in which sexuality is always seen as a sin. What's terrible is that deep down, some clergy consider that sexual acts with children are less serious than sexual acts with women. This shows that there is a very negative view of women. The Catholic Church doesn't know how to talk about sexuality because it's incapable of seeing women as desirable. That's where this meets feminism. In France, as in many parts of the world, this is still a pretty fringe approach to things. Um, growing up, Pedotti told me she felt really the need to keep her faith and feminism separate. She found a way to fight the feminist fight within the church. She's still actually a very deeply religious person, um, though she says she does bother people in power in the mm -hmm. Catholic Church. Though the sex scandal, she says, it maybe made people rethink how they approach the church and maybe have embraced some of her ideas more than before. Today, I'm invited to conferences more than before. People are starting to see that what I've been saying for a long time is true. It's almost an oxymoron to say that you're a Catholic and feminist. It seems impossible. Today, some people are saying, maybe she's right, 
not just me, but a certain number of Catholics who take very disruptive positions. Today, I can say that there are points on which I agree with the Pope, not on the issue of women, but on some issues we have a common analysis, so I'm less marginalised. Today, I think many people agree with me that there was a real error in what Pope John Paul did to focus the church on the priest, male, celibate, as sacred, and placing women as mothers and wives, reserved and quiet, like the Virgin Mary. Fedotti says there's been a shift in the church, but not a complete change. The church has a ways to go. She says it does have motivation, though, because it's been quite hurt by all these scandals. Yeah, the church lives off donations. There's no state funding for churches here in France, and those donations have gone down. Yeah, but even as the church is, you know, doing a huge amount of self-reflection about what route to take, um, there are still two currents. There's the more conservative approach, don't rock the boat, and then, of course, one that embraces change. Um, Fedotti says that that the, the, the decision of what current to take might actually be influenced by the next pope because the current pope, Francis, who is a pretty uh, embracing of change, he's not going to live forever. And so whoever is chosen to replace him, that will really push France, the French Catholic Church, to make a decision one way or the other. Sarah, you know General Charles de Gaulle, the man who saved France from the Nazis and who dominated the French political landscape in the post-war period. And still quite a pivotal figure in France even today. Yeah, well, he resigned from power on the 20th of January. So let's have a little look at that anniversary date. All right, so that was after all those student riots and protests, right, in 1968? No, <laughs> no, oh. that was his second resignation. Oh. Never want to do things by halves. De Gaulle first stepped down on 20th of January 1946. Huh. Now, you remember he had organized the French Free Forces in London during the Second World War. That was because France was under the control of Maréchal Pétain, who had collaborated with the Nazis. De Gaulle garnered plenty of support, and in June 44, he was named head of the French government in exile. Once the war was over, he came back to France to a hero's welcome, and riding high on that feeling of being a bit of a liberator, he went off to New York in July of 1944, welcomed by Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia. You, John de Gaulle, who stood by from the very beginning, who we know will stand by to the very end. Viva France! Good luck to you all in the world. Good luck to you all, men and women, working for the democracy, for the liberty, for the victory. I couldn't resist playing that little clip just to get a sense of de Gaulle's fantastic <laughs> accent. pretty intense. <laughs> um, he headed two successive provisional governments in France and he was expecting to consolidate his power at the helm of the new Fourth Republic, but that didn't happen. He got very irritated by the political parties who were forming the coalition government and he felt like basically he did not have enough power and he resigned in disgust on January the 20th, 1946. And in November of that year, the Fourth Republic was declared, but without him. Right, but that wasn't the end, right? Because we saw him come back just a decade later. Yeah, in 1958, he was called back out of retirement to save France from a political crisis, this time in Algeria, which was under French colonial rule at the time. France was considering granting independence, and the Pieds Noirs, the non-Arab French living in Algeria, but who were against giving up 
Algeria had taken up arms and they were threatening to launch civil war in France. De Gaulle came back and ended up negotiating Algeria's independence. A new French constitution was passed in December 58 and De Gaulle was elected president of the Fifth Republic mm. and that brought in a presidential system where the president has an awful lot of power over parliament. Right, and we're still in that Fifth Republic. We've actually discussed that, that yeah. presidential power in the past in this podcast and, um, you know, Macron is taking full advantage. Isn't he just... In 1965, de Gaulle was re-elected president, but the student riots of May 68 showed he'd really got out of touch with the people. And I guess that's where I had him, that vision of him. At the time, I guess he was a bit high-handed, paternalistic, and really totally disconnected from the French youth that was rebelling at the time. De Gaulle dismissed the protesters. He called them a bunch of clowns. And then he went on a state visit to Romania. That revolt was crushed by the police, supported by the middle class, who were scared of anarchy. To gain back support and control in 1969, de Gaulle called a referendum uh, to revise the constitution. And he lost. And just the next day, he resigned. This time for good. Despite that less than glorious end, the French continued to invoke de Gaulle's influence. Macron, Hollande before him, Sarkozy before him, all these presidents have claimed at one time or another to be following in de Gaulle's footsteps, but probably more for the first part of his career than for the second. This week, the French justice minister admitted that France might have no other choice but to take back French jihadists from Syria who were fighting alongside Islamic State armed group. It's looking very unlikely that fair trials can be conducted in the Middle East, and the longer the jihadists remain out there, the greater the risks there of them escaping, roaming free, and eventually remobilizing. France has been Europe's biggest exporter, I'd say, of jihadists to Syria and Iraq. I think there's some 2,000 people who went, but between 2012-2018. Yeah, that's 40% of the total leaving Europe. And as many as 80 of them are still being held by Syrian Kurdish forces in camps in northeast Syria, and they're the hardcore ones. France has always refused to have them back. It believes that they should face local justice in Syria and Iraq where the crimes were committed. But now that that's looking like that might not happen, they might be back in France, if they were to return, they would join the ranks of France's already very overcrowded prison population. And it's not just that the problem. There are some 500 people convicted of jihadist activities in France's prisons as we speak and that doesn't date back just to the 2015 Paris attacks or the attacks in Nice in 2016. The growth and the spread of jihadist ideology in France goes back some 20 years. Ah, predates all this. Exactly and it's important, it's really important in the debate to see that actually it goes back you know, much further even than Mohamed Merah in 2012 in Toulouse. A French academic and researcher in social sciences called Hugo Micheron has written about all of this in depth in a new book called Jihadisme Francais, French Jihadism. He spent five years doing research and field work, interviewing some 80 convicted or suspected jihadists in jail. He looks at how the ideology has developed in France over those last 20 years and how it flourishes inside French prisons. Huh, in the prisons, it sounds like this might be something interesting. 
interesting. <laughs> yeah, and, a, a, and an unpleasant truth for many because the discourse in France has tended to ignore the roots of jihadism as a collective phenomenon. It's tended to see jihadists as the product of alienation and deprivation or on the far right as being, you know, the, the sign that there's a fundamental problem with Islam as a religion. But as Michon told me, all of that is only a small part of the explanation. They target in priority uh, towns where the social and economical background is, is terrible, but not only. And that's something that is very, very important. We cannot reduce the question of jihadism to socioeconomic explanation. Look at Lunel, south of France. Lunel is like a modest, I would say, middle-class town where you have 25 people who join in ISIS and a total population of 25,000. If you look at Marseille, French's second biggest city, where you have a very, very strong discrimination and social marginalization in the north neighborhood of Marseille, you've got 300,000 inhabitants, mostly Muslims, and you have no such thing as one person who left Marseille to join ISIS. What I mean by that is you cannot explain jihadism by socio-economical explanation. It's useful, you need to have it in mind, But if we don't push further, we basically fell short in explaining the phenomenon. So you're saying part of the explanation is just Salafis, people who were preaching jihad, settled in certain parts of France, and then from there built up a network of preaching and conversion, you know, pushing the jihadist ideology. Yes, basically what I'm saying is that if there is a social explanation to jihadism, there is also a religious explanation. You need to combine both approaches. So a good chunk of your book... Hugo, is devoted to the interviews that you did in prison. You interviewed around 80 returning jihadists, some convicted and some presumed who were waiting trial. So some of these guys are saying things like, for example, Youssef, I think he's 27, 28-year-old, that being in prison is an almost necessary step in continuing to defend the jihadist cause, that it's in prison where you get to read. He, I think he says he has blossomed intellectually and ideologically in prison. That's problematic, isn't it? Yes, what is problematic is that we didn't understand these kind of dynamics earlier because these dynamics were happening in the early 2000s as well. Prison is not a fortress sort of protected from uh, everything that is happening in the rest of the society. And I believe we have been reproducing some theoretical mistakes, especially because of the inheritance of a French big intellectual, who is uh, Michel Foucault, French theorist, who uh, described the prison in a 1975 book called Surveiller et Punir, Survey and Punish, uh, where he presents prison as a fortress where inside the relations are vertical, like the, basically the guardians have all power over the detainees. Well, when you go to the French jail, and especially when you're looking at the jihadists, you will understand that we are very far from this. Most of them, they have cell phones, so they are like sort of connected outside of the prison. They also like reproduce a certain hierarchy that they used to respect in Syria and Iraq. So mm. you've got also these Middle East dynamics that is sort of re-imported behind the bars. And all of this make you understand that prison is not a dead end. It's a place where jihadism is reconfigurating itself, especially in the post-ISIS uh, era. There's been a lot of talk in France about de-radicalization and people going into prison, talking to the prisoners. And yet, from what some of these guys were telling you, the last thing they want is to be de-radicalized. We have to understand that prison for them is just a step 
you know, a step sometimes in a jihadist career. They present it like this one sometimes. So there's a misfit between what the men are telling you and what some of the French authorities were trying to do at the time in 2015, 2016, in the wake of all these terrible terror attacks. Yes, the thing with radicalization is like we didn't take seriously their involvement into an ideology and an Islamist group. And that was the key. I mean, for a jihadist, a convinced jihadist, which most of them are, there is no more reason to get de-radicalized. That's a nonsense for them. And especially since they are gathered all together in the so-called dedicated units in French jail. And with one extra thing very important, which is that the prison system in France, the prison administration, is the poor kids of the French state, you know, they don't have that much uh, means, don't have that much financial support. Terrible overcrowding. Terrible overcrowding. And in the middle of this, you put 300 plus jihadists in the French jail at the worst moment. Because that was the policy, wasn't it, in the beginning, directly after the 2015 attacks. They said, yes, let's group them all together so we can sort of keep an eye on them. Yeah. Was that really a major error of judgment, do you think, on the part of the French authorities? The thing is, the French administration was, was hesitating, and they have two instruments in their hands. Either you gather them all together in order to cut them from the contact with the rest of the detainees so that there is no such thing as spreading the ideology, or you spread, basically, you cut off the nest and you disperse all the jihadists all across the prison systems. And this was useful when there was a small number of them. You can disperse them and they are not able to organize. But because of the massive uh, numbers of returnees uh, from Syria and Iraq, we started to have like big groups uh, reorganizing themselves in the French jail. And this like, took time for the penitentiary institutions to get there. What is it that the jihadists are really attacking in French society? Why did France become the focus of so much terror? French jihadists are French, and sometimes they are super French to a certain extent, even though they can uh, return the, the weapon against French society, and they perceive France as, and that's one of them telling me this, the ID factory of the Western world. So basically, for them, it's the enemy which embodies the idea of the West. And he says, I mean, there is a Christian country just like Brazil or Argentina, and we don't pay attention to them. There is a liberal country just like Sweden, and we don't pay attention to them mostly. But France, you know, it's a symbol. For them, it's uh, an enemy that if you are able to push into a civil war, that if you are able to make France uh, lose its uh, strength, its uh, social contract, then you will have an open door to a victory in Europe. Basically, that's how they perceive. So they are super French. The way they perceive still France are the lighthouse of the Western world, right. which is something that we like to see of ourselves, right? So it's like undermining the so-called equality, fraternity, liberty values, the, the vivre ensemble, the yes. living together. They wanted to break all of that because they see France as being still strong yes. in defending those values. Where do you see it going then mm. from here? What is obvious is that ISIS has been defeated in the Middle East. They lost their so-called caliphate, they lost their territory over there. I mean, there is still cells, but when it comes to the organization, it's done. But all the French jihadists that I've met in prison, they have understood that they need to reconfigure themselves, to rebuild from this, and for that, they go back to their former militancy, which is basically reinvest 
neighborhood, like going under the radar, uh, not planning attack, not on a big scale at least. So basically, they want to subvert the French state because they understood the French state was stronger than them. What they understood as well is like there were 2,000 of them, which was a French record, the biggest number ever. But in the meantime, they were not enough to destabilize France over the long term. And so they want to sort of enlarge their circles. And we have to pay attention to that because it's not a security issue. It's an intellectual issue. We have to think what jihadism, we have to bring jihadism into our arsenal of public policy because it's not only policemen that will deal with the jihadists, it's also the French society entirely. And we're just like year five of the process of thinking about that issue. So I'm confident in the way we are able as a society to respond to it, but we need to stop denying the reality and we need to stop being hysterical with that issue because that's also very useful to them. So a lot of ifs there in terms of whether or not France can really deal with this jihadist problem, both you know the ones that are currently here and, and these returnees, um, how likely is it actually that these 80 people will end up back here in France? It's the million dollar question in a way. Micheron himself said he would not want the responsibility for making that decision. It's very complicated. Yes, on the one hand, uh, it will be difficult for France's prison system. On the other hand, leaving them out there means they can become bargaining chips by uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, the Syrian president, and they could therefore be, you know, there could be some blackmail going on vis-a-vis uh, -vis France. So it's a, it's a big geopolitical question. What I can say is that the majority of the French for the moment are still against these jihadists being repatriated to France. That's it for Spotlight on France this week. The show was mixed by Erwan Rome. We're actually taking a week off. We'll be back in two weeks on January the 30th. If you like what you hear, why not subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You could also drop us a line on spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Bye for now. Bye. <laughs>